If I have not had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge. And as you can tell probably by my voice, I'm a little under the weather. Tis the season for sickness. So get your vitamin C. Yesterday I went to CVS and I got the emergency pink lemonade. I think that's the best flavor. And I've been drinking it. I'm feeling a little bit better than yesterday, so praise God for that. But I wouldn't miss this morning because Christmas time is my favorite time of the year. Anyone else here, give a round of applause if Christmas time is your favorite time of the year. Yes. I love it. I absolutely love the Advent season, this season of the four Sundays before Christmas Day when there's Christmas music and Christmas lights. I'm a sucker for Christmas lights. Uh, Every single Black Friday, I have a rule because if I don't have any rules, I will just go crazy with Christmas lights. Like I want to be one of those people that has the lights to the music. You know what I'm talking about? I want that, but that's expensive. And so here's here's my guiding principle. Every year of Black Friday, I choose one new light. It's always on sale, I get a 50% off, and then I save them. So every year the house just gets more and more and more. This year I did like this like twinkling lights around the eaves of the roof. It was amazing. I'm so excited. I don't think anyone else is as excited about uh, my lights as I am, but I feel great when I come home. I love this time of year. And I love this time of year in the church in particular because this is a season where we celebrate what God has done for us, where we look in anticipation to the birth of Christ, which for our vantage point has happened, but we put ourselves in a place of waiting and preparation and anticipation for what we celebrate on Christmas Day. It's a season of friendship and family and giving and generosity. It's an amazing time of the year. And sometimes in Miami we get some cool weather. And so I love this time of the year. You know, Advent, this season, the Christmas season, was created by the church in the 5th century. So the church has been celebrating this time of year for 1,500 years. Isn't that amazing? And it was created so that we might enter into a season of anticipation, of preparation, and of waiting just as God's people did for thousands of years for the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The word Advent in Latin can be translated waiting or arrival, which is why we've called this series Arrival. Advent is the season of arrival. And we all feel the Advent season even if we're not in church. We feel the arrival of a lot of things this time of year. We feel the arrival of vacation. We feel the arrival of Christmas parties. Some of us are trying to figure out how to manage our schedule with all the parties that are arriving. We know that there's something else arriving that we're not too excited about, which is a higher credit card bill this time of year. Some of us are hoping for the arrival of a bonus. Some of us are looking forward to the arrival of time with family. Some of us know that with the arrival of time with family, there will be the arrival of awkward conversations. There's all types of things arriving. And now there is the season of Christmas music and Christmas movies that have arrived. For some of you, you went straight from Halloween to Christmas, like the next day. You skipped over Thanksgiving, so it arrived a long time ago. For me, I'm a traditionalist. I wait at least till Black Friday. And then the season arrives. But so much of that anticipation and that preparation and that waiting for the Christmas season, that arrival that we feel 
is because of the commercialization of Christmas. It's everywhere in front of us, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But sometimes because of that, we can miss the spiritual weight of the season. This time of year was not created by culture. This was created by the church for us to anticipate and to prepare and have a sense of waiting for the arrival of our Savior King. And what that means is that Advent has a kind of a double meaning. The first is, it is, the, it, it is, it is causing us to remember hope that arrived 2,000 years ago. Hope arrived back then. 2,000 years ago, we celebrate that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was born of a virgin and was raised in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and died for our sins and was buried and rose from the dead. And he was prophesied for thousands of years prior as God's people waited. Hope arrived 2,000 years ago. But hope has arrived now, too. That's the double meaning of Advent. It's not just us remembering the story of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the three wise men and the shepherd. It's also us clinging to the promises that hope arrived then, but hope is present and available now. And so we should prepare for it. We should anticipate it. Many of you have been waiting for it, and before us in this season is hope. And so the title of this first episode of our four-part series in the month of December is Keep Hope Alive. Keep Hope Alive. Now we're going to be looking at an Old Testament passage to see what God's word has for us as we begin the Advent season. And we're going to be looking into the book of Micah. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Micah. It's in the Old Testament. If It'll be on the screen as well, as well as the Crossbridge Pinecrest app. You can click on the notes. There's a whole bunch of notes there as well as the passage. But let me tell you a little bit about Micah. Micah was a prophet of God during the same time as Isaiah. They both prophesied to the same set of kings. This is about 750 B.C., so about 750 years to 700 years before Jesus was born. And he is prophesying about, in this passage you will see, the coming Messiah. Now I want to say something about prophecy so we can kind of understand what's taking place. And maybe this helps you when you read other prophetic passages in the Old Testament. Prophecy can be difficult for us as people in 2023 to read and understand. And that's because of a couple reasons. When prophets speak, they speak about two different kind of things often. And that is the immediate future, like what is going to happen very soon. So, so oftentimes prophets will predict the exile that has happened and God's people experience or different things that would happen to God's people in the Old Testament. It was prophecy for the near future. But then the prophets also, as God gives them his words and they have a vision of what God is going to do in the distant future, they'll prophesy about what's happening a long ways out. They don't even necessarily know when. And the difficulty for us when we read prophecy is prophets have this kind of tendency to sometimes mix together both distant prophecy and immediate or near future prophecy. So for us, it's hard because if we were writing a prophetic word, we would probably give details and bullet points. 
that's how we work. That's how we operate. We would say, here's what's going to happen. Here are the details. Boom, 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 boom. Here's when it's going to happen. Here's what it's going to look like. We'd give the details. But Old Testament prophets didn't give prophecy like that, in particular because their writing style was Hebrew. It's what they spoke. And the Hebrew language is very poetic. And so there's an elevation of the beauty of wordplay. And so sometimes these things would be mixed together because the prophets want you to dive into the text. They want you to understand the text. They want you to see the beauty of the text. They want you to feel it, not just read it. They want you to feel it, not just read it. You're going to see that in our text this morning. And I, I love that because we don't just read it, okay, I got the bullet points ready to go. Michael wants us to feel what he's saying. I like to think of prophecy like a mountain range. Here's how biblical prophecy look, works. It's when the prophet is speaking, the near future is like the mountains in the very front. It's, it's, you can see it clearly. Oftentimes that's where more details lie. But there's mountains in the distance. And they're hard to see. This is the future distant prophecy that the prophets are speaking about. Like Micah, for example. And when there's a prophecy that is in the distant future, it's like God lifts the fog a little bit so that they can see some of the details. And so that we can have an anticipation and an excitement for what is to come. So there's the near future and distant future prophecy. And here, God has lifted the fog on this distant reality that is going to come to pass. And Micah speaks on it 750 years before it comes to bear. We read this passage at the beginning of our service when we lit the Advent candle. And I want to read you the very second verse, the first verse that we read this morning, where Micah says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Okay, we're going to stop there. Micah, the prophet, is speaking not to a person, but to a city. He's addressing a city. So what he sees, what God enables him to see in the distant mountain, is a city. Bethlehem. Now, many of us, most of us here know the city of Bethlehem. But that city was not significant. It was a little city. Very few people knew of Bethlehem. It was overlooked. It was insignificant. It had one purpose that was known, and we'll get to that later. But it wasn't a glorious city. It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't Rome. It was the little town of Bethlehem. But then he says, Bethlehem Ephrathah. What, what is, why does he call Bethlehem Ephrathah, why are they connected together? Well, in the Old Testament, the word Ephrathah can often be used in replacement of the word Bethlehem. So they're the same thing. Sometimes people use Ephrathah in the Old Testament as the region where Bethlehem was, the kind of the small surrounding region. But I think there's a deeper connection here. Whenever Ephrathah is used, or most times when Ephrathah is used in the Old Testament, is connection to one person, and that is King David. Ephrathah is connected to King David in the Old Testament. Here's an example. 1 Samuel 17, 12 says this. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. I think there's a connection being made here by the prophet Micah to not only the city of Bethlehem, this little 
insignificant, overlooked city, but to David, the Ephrathite, who was also, what, an overlooked son. He was the overlooked king. He was the youngest of his seven brothers. Talk about feeling overlooked in a culture where the firstborn received all of the inheritance. And then if for some reason the firstborn could not receive all of the inheritance, it would go to the second, and then the third, and then the fourth. And who's last? David. David's talents and his gifts and his abilities and even his purpose and his calling in life was at the bottom of his family's hierarchy. He was overlooked, insignificant. We even know from David's story when he was anointed king, it took him over 10 years to actually be made king. It's connecting to David. It's as if Micah is saying, Bethlehem, and your citizens, this city, you feel like David, insignificant, overlooked, treated less than, not a very bright future. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. Because look what he says next. From this overlooked city, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel. Micah is saying something like what happened with David, who was overlooked and the youngest of seven brothers, and no one thought anything for him in his whole life, yet he was made king and was the greatest king in the history of Israel. Something like that is happening for you, Bethlehem. Because from you, this small town, will come one who will be a ruler over Israel. In verse 4, it says this, that the mighty ruler that's going to come from Bethlehem, he will rule to the ends of the earth. So it's not only that this king will come from Bethlehem and will be the king over Israel, it's that this king will be the king over all of the earth. Not just a city or a region, but the whole earth from Bethlehem. This is not your average king. This is the king of kings. It also says in Micah 5 that his origins will be from old. Again, this is a connection to David. His origin, his legacy will be storied. He will come from a storied lineage. This is prophecy all throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah will come from the lineage of David. It will be from old. But not only will he have a storied legacy, this king of kings, this ruler over all the earth from the little town of Bethlehem, but he will be from ancient times. Now, this phrase is not connecting to like he'll be from an even older legacy or lineage. No, but he will have been from the beginning. As scripture calls the Messiah, he'll be the ancient of days. He has always existed. He's the eternal king. Now, when you're reading this, if you understand what Micah is doing in his prophecy in Hebrew language, you know that Micah is now prophesying about the Messiah. This would have been a signal that this is a distant mountain. This is a prophetic, it's a messianic prophecy that he is citing. There's all types of prophecies about Jesus' arrival. 
in the Old Testament. I just want to read a couple of them to you. In Genesis 12, it says that he would be a descendant of Abraham, the father of our faith. In Genesis 49, it says that he would come from the tribe of Judah, meaning the tribe of the great kings. He would be from the family of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah, and from the house of David. It's the storied legacy, the origins of old. And he would be born, Isaiah 7, of a virgin, a miraculous arrival that would distinguish the arrival of this king from every other king because not only is his legacy storied, not only is he ancient of days, but it will be confirmed because he will be born of a virgin. It's a miraculous birth. It's unbelievable. When you read these details in this prophecy, even when you read Micah 5, you think to yourself, this is going to be an amazing arrival. I mean, he's going to come from Bethlehem and and a small clan, but this is the king of kings, the ruler over all the earth from the lineage of David, the great king of Israel, and he's the ancient of days, and he is going to rule the whole earth. So I want you, you know the, the story of how Jesus was born, but if you hear that, how are you imagining Jesus would be born? This, the Messiah would come. Grand entrance. It, with wealth and power and privilege and a throne and trumpets. In the, in, not, maybe he's born in Bethlehem, but maybe by that point Bethlehem is even bigger than Jerusalem. I don't know. But he is going to come in an amazing way. Because look at the prophecy about him. From the tribe of Judah. Born of a virgin. Ruler over all the earth. Micah wants us to see that Jesus will arrive differently. He comes from a small clan. It's not only that he comes from Judah, but he comes from a small clan within Judah. He's the overlooked Savior. Just like David. Just like Bethlehem. He will be treated as insignificant. He will be seen with no real purpose. We will know almost nothing about his life until he's 30. He's speaking about not only what the Savior will be like and how he will be treated, but he's speaking to people that feel like Ephrathites, that feel insignificant and overlooked, like they're from Bethlehem, like King David felt. Micah is saying that your Savior is born in the, under the same conditions to identify with people like you. People that feel overlooked and surrounded and insignificant. And his prophetic word is, keep hope alive. I think that's so comforting. It's so comforting to know that our Savior was not born with fanfare and in wealth and in the palace as where, where we would feel like we, we're not relatable to him. We can't identify with our Savior. Now, obviously, Jesus, the perfect God in the flesh, Savior of the world, who lived a perfect life, like there's, we struggle to identify with that, of course, because our life is broken. But <laughs> Jesus was born to identify with us from his very entrance into the world to a family that was poor and Overlooked, and he was born in a cave among livestock. And he was treated 
as just a regular person for most of his life, overlooked, treated as insignificant. Uh, it caused me to think this week that when you know that your Savior identifies with you in this place, that there's times in life where you feel like the world, people and powers and pressure in life is causing to push you down and treat you as insignificant and tell you that your purpose doesn't matter and you're never really going to make anything of yourself. You're like an Ephrathite, like you're like someone from Bethlehem. But the story of Jesus' birth that was sovereignly planned by God reminds us that though people may say things and the world may push things upon you, is that God's plans are not the world's plans. And there is hope in your Savior who identifies with you that when you feel overlooked, it doesn't have to affect your security because your Savior was overlooked. And it gets even better. Look at verse 4 says, here's what he will do. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. So this king who identifies with the lowly and the overlooked and the insignificant, he's going to do something. This is why you can keep hope alive. He will stand and shepherd the flock. Meaning, you are his sheep. And he, the good shepherd, will shepherd you. And he will stand for you so that you can live securely. Now I want you to consider sheep. What does it take for a sheep to feel secure? What is the main thing that is required for a sheep to feel secure? It's the removal of their enemies, in particular the wolf. Because a sheep is helpless to defend itself from enemies. It cannot outrun any, any enemy. It can't climb a tree. It can't swim away. It can't do anything. A sheep cannot protect itself from an enemy. It needs the shepherd. Without the shepherd, a sheep cannot live securely. And so here, the eternal king, the king of kings, the savior born, is saying to you that he will stand for you and he will shepherd you so you can live securely. Now I want you to ask yourself this question. Why in the world would Jesus, the good shepherd, who will stand for his sheep and will enable them to live securely, why would he be born in such a way? In a little town of Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph in a cave among livestock. Why would he be born in that way? Is it simply to identify with us in our lowest state? And why would he be born and placed in a manger? Now, oftentimes mangers are depicted as like these like nice craftsman cribs, you know, like very nice. You could probably buy a manger right now, and it would be like an art piece for your child. But mangers were not wooden, beautiful cribs. Here's what a manger looked like. If you can go to the next. That's a manger, okay? It is a stone feeding trough. So what it was used for. The primary purpose of a manger was they would craft these and place them in caves or in stables and barns or different parts of the field so that the livestock could come and eat out of them. So they put the food in there. 
That's what a manger is. A manger is a, a feeding trough for livestock. So I, I think what happened was Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem, and it's packed. There's nowhere for them to stay. And so they, they are enabled, they're, they're enabled to go into this, like, cave or little barn. That's the only place they can go. And she has birth there. And they're like, where do we put the baby? And the only place is a manger. I don't think that they thought about the significance of Jesus laid in a manger. But God did. I was doing some study this week and I saw something that was, it took my breath away. I've never seen this before. And I want to share it with you. So, I've often preached about Jesus laid in a manger. Laid in a feeding trough. And oftentimes, what I've shared and communicated about it, which is true... Is it's just another example of Jesus identifying with us in our place. He wasn't laid on a throne bed. He was laid in a feeding trough. But I discovered that there's something interesting about mangers. There's a, a second purpose that many scholars believed that mangers were used for. You see, if you actually go to Micah 4... I just pulled it up this morning, so it's not going to be on the screen. But here's what it says. Mike, the passage right before ours this morning. It says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the kingship of Jerusalem. Now, it sounds like an insignificant verse. Well, the tower of the flock is this tower that is right outside of Bethlehem in the region of Ephrathah. And this tower was famous because this tower was used by shepherds to keep watch over their flocks by night. Because the sheep that were in the region of Ephrathah and Bethlehem were used for a particular purpose. These sheep, in particular the baby sheep, were used to sacrifice in the temple. This is where the lambs that were sacrificed... For the sins of the people on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, were raised. And many scholars believe that in order to keep the lamb without blemish, they would take the lamb from this region, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, around the tower of the flock, and they would place them, ready, in a manger. So that they couldn't bump against other things and wound themselves before they were taken to the temple to be sacrificed. Now Jesus is the good shepherd who will stand for his sheep so that we can live securely. How do we live securely? Because we realize that Jesus is not only the good shepherd, he's what? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb that was slain. Jesus was born, and at his birth, he was born in the region where the lambs were sacrificed to cover and atone for the sins of God's people. And he was placed in a manger because he is the last lamb that would ever be placed in a manger to be sacrificed. This is who Jesus is. He is the lamb that was slain. And the reason that you can live secure, the reason that you can know that the shepherd stands for you is why? It is because he's not only the good shepherd, but he's the lamb that was slain. He was laid in a manger for you. And it causes me to think about Matthew 11. 
This is what it means to live secure. That you know that this is true, what Jesus says to you. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The shepherd king gives you security by giving you rest. Eternal rest for your soul through his sacrificial death, the lamb of God that was slain. And present soul rest by taking his yoke. You see, eternal rest for your soul is found by grace through faith in Jesus. And present soul rest is found by the active pursuit of Jesus. I want you to hear that. Eternal soul rest is found by grace through faith in Jesus. Rest for your soul eternally that you can live securely. But you can also live securely now knowing that your shepherd stands for you when you actively pursue Jesus. He says that you are to come to him and take his yoke. You know that rest doesn't happen accidentally. You can't be passive. If you want eternal soul rest, you don't stumble into faith. You don't just arrive at faith. You're not just conditioned into faith. It's because by God's grace you have come to faith. There's an active engagement in your faith. And you don't arrive at rest in your present situation just by like stumbling upon it. You have to pursue it. That's why Jesus says, come to me all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. How will I give you rest? Take my yoke. What is a yoke? It is a cross beam where two animals are put together so they can pull together. Jesus is saying this. You have been pulling everything in your life by yourself. You have been pulling all of your goals, all of your pressure, all the relationships, all the pain, all the things in your life, your insecurities, your anxieties, everything you've been pulling by yourself. Do you want rest? Take my yoke. Come next to me. Because my burden is light. I will give you rest. Jesus is inviting us to stop pulling through life alone and to learn from him. I wrote this question to myself this week, and I hope you receive it and challenge yourself to answer it honestly. Is the leadership of Jesus what guides your life? Is the leadership of Jesus what guides your life? We are so easily pulled to want to guide our own lives. Anyone else with me on that? Like, I, I want to guide my own life. And, and some of us have other people that guide our lives. Other voices, other authorities, other people that are important in our life, and they guide us. The question that Jesus is asking, am I the one that guides your life? Because if I'm not the one that guides your life, rest will slip through your fingers every single time. Rest, friends, is found and taken. It is not earned and liquidated. Here's what I mean by that. Many of us in this room are pursuing rest in the wrong way. We're trying to earn it. Meaning, we're just trying to work harder at our jobs so we can get more vacation time. 
We're trying to take hold of the right opportunities so that we can create more margin. We're trying to earn it by being productive so that we can create rest. Many of us have that mentality. I'm just going to really go hard now. I'm going to grind right now, and then I'm going to rest in the future. And we're thinking about when we retire and we drink our coffee on a balcony. That's what I always think about. And some of us are like, hey, I need some rest now, so I can't fully earn it all right now, so I need to liquidate. I need to eliminate people, parties, other priorities that aren't priorities anymore. I need to just eliminate things. I need to liquidate things and get them out of my life, and then I'll create more margin and therefore more rest. It doesn't work. You can try it. But it doesn't work. The times that you need rest the most are the times that you are burdened and heavy laden. And what you don't need when you are burdened and heavy laden is, hey, you can have rest if you just eliminate all this stuff and work harder. Or if you get smarter. Or if you try this or do that or add that to your plate. Sometimes we we, we think that we're going to get rest like this. It's like we're drowning We're weighed down, we're at the bottom of the ocean, and we're carrying all this weight, and we're like, okay, I'll just, like, let go of these weights, and then it'll help me to swim up to the surface, and I'll swim up to the surface, and I'll take a breath, and that's good, but eventually I can't tread water with all the weight on me, and so, and then there's, like, more things that happen, and people are giving me more weight to carry, and then I sink back down, and I hold my breath as long as I can, and then I let go of some things, and I swim back up, and it's like, our life is like that over and over again, and that's called refreshment. Refreshment and rest are different things. Refreshment is when you're running the mile or many miles. You're running a marathon and you're like, hey, I need to walk for a mile and drink and eat those. I don't know what those things are that you, that you runners eat. They're like little jellies. You eat that, you know, and you walk for a mile so you get refreshed so you can run again. The rest that Jesus is offering is rest that you can find while you're running. It is the second wind. And it is not earned And it is not found through liquidation. It is found in Jesus and it is discovered or taken by taking his yoke. His leadership. That's what yoke means. Taking the leadership of Jesus. You see, if you want real rest, present rest for your soul, you realize two things. One... I find it in Jesus who enables me to live securely because he is the shepherd that stands for me. He's the lamb of God that was slain for me who arrived 2,000 years ago. And I can do nothing to earn God's love or forgiveness or grace. All I can do is receive it. When I find it, I receive it and it changes my whole life. But now after I have received the eternal rest of Jesus because of what he did on the cross for me, I now actively take it so that I'm not only living securely in the future as his promises to stand for me so I can live securely, but I'm living securely now because I'm pursuing Jesus now. I'm taking his yoke upon me now, and I want to tell you this, it's, I say this all the time and I'm going to keep saying it probably for the rest of my life. There are the two things that you have to pursue and you have to take up when Jesus says, take my yoke. If you want rest, here are the two things you need to do. Ready? They're really, really important. Word and prayer. 
Go to God's word and pray. It is the most foundational aspect of Jesus' leadership. You want present rest, listen to God's word, read God's word yourself, not just when it's preached. Read his word yourself and talk to God in prayer. This is the building block of taking the wisdom and the leadership and the yoke of Jesus so that you can find rest as you navigate this life. Many of us want the application of God's rest, but we're not in the conversation. We hear this, we're like, okay, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and take the yoke upon me. Okay, that's great. We want what's applied to us, but we are not in the conversation with God. If you want God's rest, you need to be in conversation with the author of rest. And he offers it to you. That's why Jesus says three really important words. When he speaks about removing your burden and being heavy laden, he says, come to me. How do you come to Jesus? In his word and in prayer. Friends, we have an amazing vantage point. It's such a blessing, the vantage point that we have in 2023 in this Advent season as we Remember as we celebrate, as we prepare our hearts for the arrival of our king some 2,000 years ago, but who is alive now and offers hope now. In fact, here's what Matthew 13 says. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it. And to hear what you heard but did not hear it. We are blessed because we see Jesus for who he is, the good shepherd who stands for us and causes us to live securely by his sacrificial death because he's also the lamb of God and who offers us rest by pursuit of him. So my encouragement to you as you start this Advent season, this preparation, this time of waiting and anticipation, that you would pursue Jesus' leadership by pursuing Jesus in his word and through prayer. It sounds simple, but it is so easy for us to put on the side and prioritize other things. Jesus says, come to me. Would you come to him this season? Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the simplicity of your truth and your word. Sometimes we overcomplicate faith and this life of faith. Or because we feel like people from Bethlehem and Ephrathites overlooked and insignificant or people without a bright future, people treated less than, and we're constantly trying to grow and garner more influence and opportunities and resources. We can miss out on the simple, beautiful truth that Jesus, you invite us to come to you to find rest and that we can live securely in you because you are our shepherd and you are the lamb of God that was slain. God, I pray that this season with all of the things that are happening, that you would help us, encourage us, Holy Spirit, convict us and challenge us 
to be with you every day by reading your words to us and by talking to you. You don't need us to use fancy words. You don't need us to do different things. You just want us to read your word, God, and talk to you. And we find rest there. God, I pray that we would believe what you say and come to you, Jesus. Take your yoke and find rest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.